Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, who's a civilian and who's a terrorist? A hospital director in the Gaza Strip says that nurses and doctors in his hospital are also members of the Hamas terrorist group, including himself. And the U.S. and other countries take action against Yemen's Houthis. Jason Perry reports. The war has shown cracks in the Democrat Party. Today, a ceasefire protest broke out in the Capitol. As a new poll reveals a continuing trend, young voters are unhappy with the president's handling of the conflict. Two grim immigration milestones at the same time. One for the most ever illegal entries into the U.S. in a single day. The other for the backlog of pending immigration cases. Arian Pazdar has more on the border crisis. Republican candidate Nikki Haley is on the move up. She's racking up points in New Hampshire and closing in on frontrunner Donald Trump. But is it enough to make her a contender in the general election? Arlene Richards compares the numbers. Is President Biden's impeachment inquiry justified and will the timing help or hurt the probe? The Clinton impeachment manager shares with us his assessment. A solemn event at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. President Biden and Supreme Court justices honor the first woman who served on the high court. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. In a startling revelation, a hospital director in the Gaza Strip says nurses and doctors are also members of the Hamas terrorist group. His confession comes as the U.S. is teaming up with other nations to stop Yemen's Houthis in the Red Sea. NTD's Jason Perry has the war update. Israel Defense Forces continue to keep the pressure on Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip. During one of the IDF's recent missions, they found this explosive device, which Israeli troops said was facing this door and in range of a clinic. On Tuesday, Israeli forces reported that since the beginning of the war, they have now found approximately 1,500 tunnel entrances belonging to Hamas. The IDF says most of the tunnels they found have been located under schools, hospitals and mosques, and most recently under United Nations facilities. However, the IDF is not only finding tunnels and weapons, but also suspected terrorists. This man was recently released by Israeli forces and he explained the moment he was detained. They were using loudspeakers asking the wounded and the displaced in El Mamadani Hospital to evacuate. My disabled brother was also taken away and I do not know what happened to him. Meanwhile, other Palestinian detainees are providing valuable information to the IDF, including this hospital director. He said he joined the Hamas terrorist group in 2010, and he holds the rank of brigadier general. He explained that the medical professionals who worked in the hospital, including nurses and doctors, were also members of the Hamas terrorist group, and he gave further details. There's a place for the interrogators, a place for internal security, a place for special security, and they all had private lines, private telephone lines in those places. 
He added that they used ambulances for their terrorist operations. The IDF remains determined to catch all of those responsible for the terrorist attacks on October 7th, in which 1,200 innocent civilians in Israel were killed. This man visited the site of the music festival where Hamas terrorists murdered hundreds of attendees. He said he wanted to see the spot where his son was killed. No Hamas. That's what I'm hoping. That the people that live here can live uh, quietly and uh, don't be always uh, under attack of uh, bombing. Meanwhile, the United States and other countries are keeping a close eye on Yemen's Houthis. The group has been attacking ships in the Red Sea that it says are headed to Israel. In response to those attacks, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin on Tuesday said the United States is launching a multinational operation to safeguard commerce in the Red Sea from Houthi attacks. Meanwhile, the Houthis say they will not be deterred by the U.S.-led security initiative. Jason Perry, NTD News. The Israel-Hamas war has revealed cracks within the Democrat Party, poll after poll showing that young voters are dissatisfied with President Biden's handling of the war. Now, a New York Times poll says that voters trust former President Trump more than Biden on the issue. 1,000 voters nationwide were asked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Just one-third of them said they approve of President Biden's approach, and 46% said they think former President Trump would do a better job. Nearly three-quarters of voters between the ages of 18 and 29 disapprove of Biden's approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This according to a New York Times-Siena College poll. Illustrating the point, today in the U.S. Capitol, a protest broke out. A large group of protesters took advantage of the Capitol tour to unravel banners and started chanting, ceasefire now. Capitol police used zip ties to arrest around 60 people. Progressive Democrats have long criticized Israel and Biden's support for the Jewish state. We cannot unwind ourselves from the destiny of all other workers in the world. And that means standing for peace and standing for a ceasefire in Gaza now. Thousands of civilians um, being killed that uh, two wrongs certainly don't make it right. There has to be a ceasefire. In recent weeks, the Biden administration expressing increased concern about civilian death. Protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in Tel Aviv yesterday saying the ultimate solution is for Israelis and Palestinians to live side by side. Two grim milestones regarding immigration at the same time. Monday set a new record for the most ever illegal entries into the U.S. in a single day. And the backlog of pending immigration cases hit three million for the first time ever. NTD's Arian Pazdar has an update on immigration. Republican Senator James Lankford says the U.S. saw the most ever single-day illegal border crossings on Monday, with over 12,000 people entering unlawfully adding that Homeland Security can only process 500 people a day. That means 11,800 people have been released into the country and we have no idea who they are. In related news, Lankford says lawmakers won't be able to pass Biden's supplemental aid package this year. The proposal would allocate money to Ukraine, Israel and America's southern border. Republicans want stricter immigration laws to be included in the aid package. Here is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer commenting on the issue on Tuesday. 
Finding common ground on the border has been difficult. In fact, one of the most difficult issues Congress has faced in a good while. We have more work to do, and it's going to take more time. However, there's another immigration bill which did pass this week. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a law making it a state crime to illegally enter Texas. The only thing we are doing by this law is making sure that our law enforcement have the tools they need to actually take action against those who are actually coming across the border illegally. The measure gives local law officials the ability to arrest immigrants who are trying to sneak into the Lone Star State. And the U.S. broke another record regarding immigration. The backlog of pending cases in immigration courts passed 3 million for the first time ever this November. Judges are swamped with an average of 4,500 pending cases each. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Nikki Haley surges in New Hampshire. That's according to a new CBS poll that shows her closing the gap against Trump. But can her success be replicated in Trumpier states? NTD's Arlene Richards takes a look at the numbers. Victory is within sight for Nikki Haley's race in New Hampshire. A new CBS poll shows her closing the gap against former President Trump, with Trump at 44 percent and Haley at 29 percent. The numbers indicate that Haley is gaining momentum in her race for the Republican nomination. According to CBS, Haley gained the non-Trump vote to emerge as the top alternative in New Hampshire. And anti-Trump pollsters view Haley as more likable and reasonable. But could a New Hampshire win help Haley become a viable candidate in the long run? The same poll has Haley down by 45 points in Iowa, with Trump leading at 58 percent and Haley in third place at 13 percent. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a primarily Trump-aligned candidate, is in second. Caucus goers in Iowa overwhelmingly believe Trump represents Iowa values. But Haley often says this about Trump. The problem is, you see our country is in disarray, our world is on fire, and you can't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. And Donald Trump brings us chaos. A reporter on This because Week I challenged her to draw the line on Trump. Anti-Trumpers want me to hate him, pro-Trumpers want me to love him, but this is where I stand. There are things I agree with the president on. I had a good working relationship with him. There are things I don't agree. Haley still has an uphill climb to get enough solid support. It may require other candidates to drop out of the race and endorse her. Few pollsters described former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie as likable, but he told Face the Nation that polls are foolish. Um, and the fact is that in the end, look, Governor Haley got an endorsement this week that got her a lot of free media publicity, uh, but it doesn't change one simple fact. She won't answer questions uh, about Donald Trump. If Christie left the race, Haley could get a boost in New Hampshire, but it's unclear that she could get the same boost in other early voting states. Real Clear Politics shows Trump has a poll average of 29.6 points over Haley in her home state of South Carolina. And nationally, Trump leads at 62.9 percent. Haley's in third at 11.6 percent. Haley says Trump voters are exhausting. You're exhausting in your obsession with him. Haley is racking up on anti-Trump endorsers and big dollar donations, and she has a strong case for being more electable against President Biden. But the question remains, could a New Hampshire win cause Trump voters to switch to Haley? We'll have to wait and see. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
Today is the final day of Turning Point USA's America Fest 2023 in Phoenix. Young conservatives from across the nation traveled to attend the conference. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what they had to say and some highlights from a few speakers. 17-year-old Lydia Harvey traveled from Texas to attend the conference. She'll be voting for the first time in the 2024 election. I will be voting for President Trump. He already did a wonderful job the first time running the country. He kept all of his promises. Elsa Personette says she grew up in a very liberal state and felt alone in her views. So she really appreciates the networking and connections she can make at AmFest. Meeting people from all over the country that are like-minded in the same political views and values as you. Blaine Hibbert's favorite speaker was Carrie Lake. She's running for the United States Senate here in Arizona and she's going to do a great job. Uh, she's a very passionate uh, individual and she refers to herself as Trump in a dress, so that's, that's pretty cool too. Jessica Gomez feels that modern culture has demonized traditional values. When you have conservative values, a lot of people think that it's hateful and that it's trying to be against them and that it's trying to um, be racist, be homophobic. Gomez is hoping a Republican wins the presidency, saying college students have suffered economic hardship under President Biden. Conservative commentator Tucker Carlson spoke at the event. He said America sits on the cusp of collapse with interest on the debt costing more than defense spending. And when robotics are eliminating entire classes of jobs for working class people, why would you admit illegally tens of millions of people from the poorest countries in the world with no skills? The conservative commentator said the current administration and enablers in the Republican Party are trying to destroy the United States. The people doing evil do not win in the end. They are destroyed by the evil that flows through them. Presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy also spoke at the event, laying out his plan for election integrity. Single day voting on election day as a national holiday with paper ballots, government issued ID to match the voter file. Political commentator Benny Johnson gave some advice to young men on how to be unshakable. Find a woman, fall in love, get married. Have more children than you can afford. Have insane amounts of kids. There's nothing the world can do to shake you if you do those simple steps. Turning Point USA is an American nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2012 by Charlie Kirk and Bill Montgomery. It supports conservative politics on high school, college, and university campuses. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Hunter Biden is slated to make his first court appearance in California next month. The president's son is facing a string of litigations, including three felony and six misdemeanor tax charges. These charges come after a criminal investigation into his business dealings between 2016 and 2019. Instead of paying for his taxes, the indictment alleges that Hunter Biden spent his foreign earnings on, quote, extravagant lifestyle, which includes drugs, escorts, luxury hotels and limos. And those spendings reportedly totaled at least $1.4 million. On top of these charges, the president's son is also accused of tax evasion, even filing a false return for one of his companies back in 2018. The arraignment is set to take place on January 11th. 
On this day in 1998, the House impeached President Bill Clinton for perjury and obstruction of justice. Attorney Bob Barr is a former congressman and the Clinton impeachment manager. We spoke to him earlier to discuss the current impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Bob Barr, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. To begin, I want to look back at history. How did the impeachment of President Bill Clinton begin and how does it compare to the impeachment inquiry or inquiries into President Biden today? The, the Clinton impeachment began uh, really formally with the report that was sent to the Congress by independent counsel Kenneth Starr. So we were presented in the fall of 1998 with a very comprehensive record uh, of violations of federal laws by Bill Clinton. So the real work had already been done by the independent counsel, Mr. Starr. Uh, what we did in the House is we took that information, uh, put it before the Judiciary Committee, which is the appropriate committee to consider an impeachment. Uh, we had witnesses, we had uh, hearings, we had full discussions, and then we reported uh, articles of impeachment to the House, and the House voted that uh, President Clinton should be impeached for perjury and obstruction of justice on December 19th of 1998. And then, of course, it went to the Senate, where it unfortunately did not proceed to a conviction. Now, in terms, in your view, do you think the impeachment inquiry into President Biden today is justified? I think it's justified. I have some concerns that the Republicans may have waited too long to move forward with this. And they have allowed, I think, the rhetoric to get out in front of the evidence. And I think that's going to hurt them building public support, particularly as we're entering an election year. Uh, it's very difficult to gain public support for impeaching a president in an election year if you don't have very strong evidence that laws have been broken, even though a violation of a law is not necessary for an impeachment. It certainly strengthens your case. Expanding on that, what do you make of the timing of this impeachment inquiry? Will Republicans actually undermine their efforts, as you notice, starting it so late? I think politically it's a very difficult position the Republicans have put themselves in because the issues that are on the minds of the voters, as, I, as far as I can tell, as we enter this election year in 2024, uh, really are pocketbook issues, immigration issues, education issues, not so much what Hunter Biden has or has not done or whether Hunter Biden's misdeeds uh, reflect on the president or that the president was involved in those. I don't quite understand why the Republicans have waited so long to get to this point. And I'd also be concerned that they have split up the impeachment inquiry into several different committees, which I think makes it more difficult to focus the impeachment, which is, again, absolutely necessary. So I'm not sure they're going about it the right way. Hmm. And given your experience in the Clinton impeachment case, what challenges do you see the House Republicans facing as they try and bring these articles of impeachment to a vote? Simply convincing the public 
that this is not about politics, that it's about more than politics. And in order to do that, we had in the Clinton impeachment, as I say, a full record from a trained prosecutor that had already gathered a lot of evidence. So the Republicans now don't have that. And thus far, they've developed a lot of smoke, but no fire. And it's getting a little bit late in the game to show the American people there's some real fire there, as opposed to just a lot of smoke. And what would constitute that fire? What kind of evidence do they need? Well, for example, they have made allegations that uh, the president himself, while he was vice president, for example, benefited financially and directly from involvements in his son's goings on overseas and that he, Joe Biden, made decisions or took action as vice president in return for and connected to receiving those monies from his son's accounts. Absent that link, that quid pro quo, so to speak, between money and official actions, I don't think the Republicans are going to be successful in building support for an impeachment. Bob Barr, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's funeral was today. Her family members, President Biden, and the current justices of the High Court attended the memorial service at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Sandra Day O'Connor, the daughter of the American West, was a pioneer in her own right, breaking down the barriers in legal and political worlds and the nation's consciousness. To her, the Supreme Court was bedrock, the bedrock of America. O'Connor was the first woman to ever serve on the nation's highest court. Biden and Chief Justice John Roberts delivered the eulogies. Biden said O'Connor helped empower generations of women. And Roberts said O'Connor was so successful that the barriers she broke down are almost unthinkable today. Then President Ronald Reagan nominated O'Connor to the Supreme Court in 1981. At the time, Biden was one of the senators who voted to confirm her. O'Connor retired in 2006. She died on December 1st at the age of 93. Coming up, a powerful storm in the Northeast has killed at least five people. It also knocked out power, flooded roads, and forced an evacuation. Google agrees to a $700 million settlement after it's sued by every state in the union. If you made a purchase in the Google Play Store, you could be eligible for a payout. And cocaine disguised as jalapeno paste shipments. More on how much California border officials seized just after this break. Just in, in a stunning and unprecedented decision, the Colorado Supreme Court removed former President Trump from the state's 2024 ballot today. 
The court ruled that Trump isn't an eligible presidential candidate because of the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. The ruling will be placed on hold pending appeal until January 4th. The state Supreme Court decision only applies to Colorado, but is sure to impact the 2024 presidential campaign. It tees up an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which could settle the matter for the entire nation. At least five people are dead after a violent northeast storm knocked out power, flooded roads and forced an evacuation. South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Maine and Massachusetts all reported fatalities. The National Weather Service says over five inches of rain fell in parts of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. More than 600,000 power outages were reported from Virginia to Maine. Wind gusts of nearly 70 miles per hour were recorded in southeast New England. The Weather Service issued flood warnings for the New York City area, New Jersey and New Hampshire. Although the storm has moved to Canada, its effects still linger. Possible floods may occur across New England. Hundreds of thousands of people await power crews to get services up and running again. People in the southeast are also still reeling from the effects of the storm, which began there last weekend. Over $10 million in hard narcotics disguised as jalapeno paste shipments seized in San Diego. NTD's Stephanie Sakal reports. A shipment of jalapeno paste in San Diego last week was found to contain over $10 million worth of hard narcotics, including 3,000 pounds of methamphetamine and over 500 pounds of cocaine. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers discovered 349 concealed packages and vats at the Otay Mesa cargo facility. CBP officers said that the shipment was located in a commercial tractor trailer driven by a 28-year-old with a valid border crossing card on December 13. A K-9 unit detected something suspicious around 10.30 a.m. and officers began inspecting the packages. The truck driver was turned over the Homeland Security investigations, and the incident comes after officers seized over 14,000 pounds of narcotics at California's land ports of entry throughout November. Additionally, the U.S. Coast Guard intercepted over $239 million worth of cocaine in San Diego in six separate smuggling events this month. Stephanie Sakal, NTD News. Google agrees to make big changes to its Play Store in favor of consumers and developers and to pay a $700 million settlement after being sued by every state in the U.S. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Google is making changes to its Play Store after being sued by attorneys general from all 50 states. They accused Google of using its monopoly power to exact enormous sums from app developers and consumers. Google takes a 30% cut of all app payments by forcing them to go through Google's billing system. Now it must let developers use other payment methods, where 26% will go to Google. The company will also make it easier for people to download apps directly from the developers' websites. Before, Google had policies that drove consumers to its app store and away from other app stores. It must now change some of those policies. Google is also paying a $630 million settlement to consumers and an additional $70 million to states. 
not everyone is happy. Fortnite maker Epic Games says the settlement provides no true relief to consumers or developers. It says developers still have to pay 26% of everything to Google, so consumers will have to pay more as well. This is only one antitrust lawsuit against Google, so the ultimate outcome is still unclear. But it's not really clear that the precedents that get set here will, to what extent they'll influence that, is unclear. And even more so because what you have in the Apple case and what you have in the Google case are precedents that don't agree with each other now. Antitrust expert Jessica Malugin says Epic Games itself previously sued Google over its monopoly power and won. The judge for that case still hasn't decided what Google must do, and Google says it will appeal. Epic also sued Apple for similar reasons and lost. We said this over here about Apple. Now are we going to make a U-turn with Google or are we going to try to find some middle ground here? 102 million consumers across the U.S. are eligible for Google's $630 million settlement. To be eligible, your address and your Google Payments profile had to be in the United States at the time you made the purchase. And the purchase had to be made between August 2016 and September 2023. States believe most people will receive the money without having to file a claim. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Coming up, what does Jimmy Lai's prosecution mean for millions living in Hong Kong? And why is there reportedly no jury for his trial? We'll hear more from a China expert. And attacks against human rights advocates protesting at APEC. A protest organizer tells us the attackers were well organized. Hear more about what he witnessed. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Israel arrested a Gaza hospital director who admitted that medical professionals, including himself, are also Hamas members. Meanwhile, the U.S. is spearheading multinational operation to safeguard commerce in the Red Sea from Houthi attacks. Over 12,000 people crossed into the U.S. illegally on Monday, the most ever in a single day. At the same time, the backlog of pending cases in immigration courts passed 3 million for the first time ever. A recent poll from CBS News shows Nikki Haley narrowing the gap against former President Trump in New Hampshire, but Trump is still commanding a comfortable lead, both in that state and in national polls. Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's funeral was held at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. President Biden gave a eulogy praising her as a pioneer. An outspoken journalist advocating for democracy went on trial this week in Hong Kong. But under Chinese communist rule, the 76-year-old was not allowed a jury or his UK defense lawyer. What could this mean for Hong Kong's estimated 7 million residents? NTD's David Lam speaks with Epic Times China expert Nan Su. Nan Su, senior investigative reporter with the Epic Times, and you specialize in Chinese politics and government deception. Thank you for joining me. Oh, David, thank you for having me. Now, um, let's talk about Jimmy Lai, this um, Hong Kong tycoon that recently went to trial in Hong Kong. So uh, what's your thoughts on this trial? Well, that basically shows that uh, uh, Hong Kong has completely lost uh, its uh, freedom of speech, freedom of press. Now, uh, what Jimmy Lai's case, case is, it, it stands for, it's a, 
an extraordinary example that how a city is being ruled by the uh, a British government for like a century long, and they still can easily uh, lose, you know, the the kind of freedom people have been enjoying for decades. Now, speaking of freedom, there are many people, including the son of Jimmy Lai, who's calling this trial a sham. So is, is this a common thing for people to kind of just call out the prosecution from the uh, Hong Kong government? Well, of course, in Hong Kong, a lot of people living in Hong Kong society, they used to enjoy a lot of freedoms when British government was ruling Hong Kong. But now, this is something new, but all you need to do for us, all you need to do is just turn your eyesight to China, look at it. This kind of a thing has been happening ever since 1949 uh, inside China. So now it's just happening in Hong Kong. In China, you're talking about, you're talking about Chinese Communist regime's unlimited uh, government power. There's no limit. So they basically, they look at the situation. Uh, wherever your situation uh, uh, is, it doesn't really matter. They actually can use their law to persecute you as they see fit. Um, you know, what, what about the, the rights of the citizens or the nation to improve its, um, anybody that has like a different opinion that wants to change the way things are? The Chinese people living under the Chinese Communist regime, that political system, they don't just, they don't have any freedom, you know, from, especially when you, when you talk about religious freedom. But if you don't have religious freedom, then you are not pretty much entitled of any other freedom because you don't even have a freedom to think, right? And that's why a lot of people are looking at this case. So um, Nan Su, senior investigative reporter with the Epic Times, Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. A bipartisan group of lawmakers is asking the Justice Department to investigate transnational repression, specifically the attacks on Chinese human rights advocates who protested against the Chinese Communist Party's leaders' visit to the APEC summit in San Francisco last month. Joining us now to discuss the attacks, we have one of the protest organizers, Zhou Fengshuo. He's a human rights activist and was one of the student leaders during the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. Zhou Fengshuo, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. To begin, a bipartisan panel is demanding that the Justice Department investigate the Chinese Communist Party's role in these attacks on Chinese pro-democracy and pro-human rights protesters at the APEC summit recently. What can you tell us about those attacks? Uh, from what we know, these attacks are well organized and uh, the identify themselves. Uh, for example, by the red scarf on their neck, on their uh, head, and uh, they are triggered, for example, yeah, if uh, people wish Xi Jinping, and they act uh, in a well-trained sanction, for example, uh, they will use the flagpole uh, to attack, yeah, just seek uh, uh, yeah, to be doing like waving, and they use the flag to cover people when there is attack going out. So you cannot take a video a picture. No, there's no evidence. And they also intentionally destroy 
phones, you know, with uh, pictures uh, yeah, and they threw the phones in river, in, in the water, and uh, uh, some of them even had the audacity to smirk at the camera. So it's definitely well-organized, coordinated attacks. And uh, we have seen people, the yeah, well-known CCP supporters in New York City, they're outside directing people. And we have video evidence of Chinese students uh, who said he came with busloads of Chinese students and they are paid by the Chinese consulate for their lunch. And in the same video, they said that people from New York City were, were paid with hotel and flight uh, so they, that they would come. There's this attack of three people who were leaving the San Francisco airport at the last day yeah. when everything was empty. And all of a sudden, they were surrounded by this group of people who uh, yeah, look like typical mafia kind of people. And uh, they uh, attacked them viciously. And what's worse is that the identified one of the attacker and show it to police. But so far, the police hadn't taken any action, as far as we know, against this perpetrator. The same group of people actually attacked some local journalists and robbed them of their funds. And uh, it's not only what's happened, what's happened there, it's what's still happening. And what happened before, that's very disconcerting. Even before the APEC, people who mentioned, who were preparing to go there to protest their family, were quite sued by police. They were pressured, they were warned not to go by their family back in China. And the during the APEC, while Xi Jinping was there, one famous Chinese citizen journalist, Sun Lin, was beaten to death in Nanjing by Chinese police because he was tweeting about the violent attacks on protesters during Xi Jinping's visit in San Francisco. And you mentioned the attacks weren't just in San Francisco around APEC, but even before that and also in New York. Give us a sense of the extent of this transnational repression that's happening here on U.S. soil. So, yeah, on the ground, there are more than 2,000 organized uh, Chinese dictators, supporters there. And uh, uh, they came from all over the country and uh, very well organized. Some of them look like the uh, military troop yeah. uh, and the brutalized not only Chinese dissidents, but uh, Tibetans, Hong Kongers. Yeah. I think we have more than 50 documented cases of attacks. Uh, and some of them 
or beaten repeatedly one day after another. And as I said, yeah, the protesters ask for support from the San Francisco police. They didn't really get any. Uh, instead, some, well, obviously, a protester was arrested by San Francisco police. Gosh, and you mentioned earlier there's plenty of evidence that some of these were students and they were like the bus was paid for or their hotels were paid for. But how did you find that evidence? Did people tell you or was it documented? Uh, this video, we have the link on our report at HRIC Substack account. There's a link to that video. Uh, that video was supposedly taken by a Chinese student. I think it's uh, looked like a very authentic uh, personal account uh, of his experience. And uh, uh, of course, we have collective evidence from lots of people. We have the exactly date, address, time, and we send all these to journalists and uh, police. And you did help organize some of these protests, not just in San Francisco, but also in other states. What is your message to those who maybe are facing pressure from family back in China or are seeing these cases of transnational repression? What is your message to them? Yeah, CCP rules Chinese people by lies and violence. And here, in the United States, this is supposed to be our last resort to fight for our freedom. And we cannot be silenced because they are holding our families as hostage. We have to fight back, to liberate them, not the other way, to be held as hostages against our own way in this free country. That, unfortunately, what's happening to most Chinese people here. Zhou Fengshuo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Coming up, Iceland's massive volcanic eruption lights up the sky but poses no threat to life or air travel. Amazing scenes as the volcano spews thousands of cubic feet of lava per second. And in the NFL, it's decision week for Aaron Rodgers and the New York Jets. Will he actually suit up? NTD's Dave Martin joins us in the studio when we return. Welcome back. The government of Iceland now says last night's large volcanic eruption poses no threat to life and that it won't affect air travel as international flight corridors remain open. That's after lava and smoke poured into the Iceland sky last night. Between 3,000 and 7,000 cubic feet of lava are merged per second. That's several times more than in previous eruptions in the area. Local police raised their alert level as a result of the eruption. The country's civil defense warned the public not to approach the area. Iceland was prepared for the eruption. Last month, the government evacuated around 4,000 people. 
A volcanic eruption in Iceland in 2010 caused the largest closure of European airspace since World War II. Many flights connecting Europe and the U.S. fly over Iceland. This resulted in financial losses of around $2 billion. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty happening in sports. Let's start in the NBA. Tonight is the return of all-star John Morant to Memphis after serving a 25-game suspension. How important is he to their success? You know, I think it's even more so than we thought. They were just 6-19 without him. This from a team that won their division each of the last two years with him at the point. Now, I'll grant they've had some injuries uh, this year as well, too, that have made this work. Worse, but back to Morant, you know, there are players who put up like big numbers in the box scores, but somehow it doesn't translate to wins. I don't think he's, I think it's safe to say he's not one of those players. Now that said, last year he was 11th in the league in scoring, 5th in assists, and despite being just six foot two, his 6 rebounds a game were like 3rd on his own team. He also has this infectious energy about him that I think his teammates seem to feed off of. Now, the season can still be salvaged, you know, as long as they get healthy, they start playing well, and he avoids getting suspended again. Now, moving over to the NFL, the Jets have to decide this week whether or not to activate Aaron Rodgers, who's been out with a torn Achilles. With them out of the playoffs, is there any chance they do it? No, I don't think so. I mean, his return seemed to hinge on how healthy he was and where the Jets were in the playoffs. Now, he said in the Pat McAfee show today that he's still not 100% and he thinks that'll still be a few weeks away. Well, by that time, the regular season will be over. And basically, it already is for the Jets, who were eliminated yesterday from the playoffs for the 13th straight season. So there's little to play for, and I don't know if he would want to play behind this offensive line that's really been ravaged by injuries. Now, one other interesting thing he said today is that he does expect to play one more year beyond next year. Uh, which is huge for the Jets because that, that was a big question mark when they traded for him. When will he retire? He just turned 40 years old a couple weeks ago. So that would definitely make the trade for him more worth it. Now shifting gears to the college games, there seems to be a growing trend of players who are skipping their postseason bowl games. What's behind this? Well, it seems similar to Rodgers. You know, why risk injury for a seemingly, a seemingly unimportant game? You know, we're not talking about the playoff bowl games here. Those don't get skipped. There's a championship to play for. But the presence of the playoffs has almost rendered these bowl games obsolete, like the NIT of college basketball almost. Plus, there's so many of them, it's really diluted the whole system. It used to be the Rose Bowl, the Orange, the Sugar, the Fiesta, a few others, and you had to be really good to get an invite. You know, by, my, by 1990, it had slowly uh, grown up to 19 games. Now there are 40, 41 of them, and all you have to do is have a 500 record to qualify. So I think it's really watered down the entire concept. Now, elsewhere in college sports, a judge has granted a preliminary injunction against the NCAA that allows athletes to transfer a second time without having to sit out a year. What do you think the impact of this will be? I think at least coaches will try to push back on this somehow. You would almost have to re-recruit your entire roster every single season. Uh, like on a yearly basis, it certainly shifts the balance of power to the players for sure. You know, I think coaches have become okay with the transferring once without penalty. But I've also heard the argument that, you know, if, if you're in a situation you don't like, maybe there's lessons to be learned by persevering through it. Now this case stems from seven different states suing the NCAA over their transfer eligibility rule. The case now won't be heard until after the academic year is over. So I would guess there'll be even more players transferring this second semester than there ever were before. 
Wow, well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.